This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Some big games are a bit of a damn squib, and then other big games have one team's £100 million tracker saying he'd basically rather not have joined the club two days beforehand, an Irishman drafted in at late notice to play a crucial role, at least two goal of the month contenders inside the first 40 minutes, and a possible red card inside six seconds yeah i think it's fair to say chelsea liverpool delivered in spades all right hello and welcome to today's second half of football podcast hello there ken hello kieran how are you i'm good and that's before we even get to man city's 2-1 win on saturday morning and the league-wide conspiracy against arsenal that goes right to the very top of british society apparently so it was a very dramatic week to start off 2022 and we should start off 2022 by wishing you all a very happy new year thanks so much for all your support in 2021 and hopefully you'll stick with us for another year of shows this year a very good weekend for Cuevin Callagher as well Ken am I a sentimental old good or is it not very nice to see an Irish player playing and distinguishing himself in a game of this magnitude even if it's an Irish player who can't currently get into the Irish team well that's the problem with our um, uneven distribution of talent why are they why are our best players all goalkeepers. Um, it is it's a cruel one. I mean, at least you know when, when they were all fullbacks, you could fit two of them in the team. Mm. But and, st- and play two of them as wingers, unless which we definitely did for a while. Unless you know Bazunu plays in midfield at some point. Um, I think Keller is a better option in midfield. I like the way he stops completely. He stands stock still while oh, the, the waiting for a player to, waiting for a player to rush at him <sighs> and then just it's off unbelievable <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, this is the sort of composure we need in the middle a of the park a couple of times I was watching that's like get rid of it <laughs> 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 no but he's he's uh, he's been through those uh, psychological barriers I mean he did he did lob a couple of poor passes into um you know the sort of uh, the line separating Liverpool's defensive third from the middle third I thought to straight to mm. but that, that happened once or twice and I was so he gets every pass right. Um, did you see his number one fan, Virgil van Dijk, talking about him after the game? I sure did. His presence is, is good. He's confident on the ball. The the relevant section, I thought. I mean, in, you know, he obviously he was praising young uh, Quivin, uh, you know, in every aspect. Um, but do you think there was anything pointed in the fact that van Dijk said, uh, "Well, you know, he couldn't do anything about the first goal." <laughs> You know, I thought I thought there was a little bit of well, you know, the first goal was a great strike. Mm. I thought the but second goal was a pretty good goals. finish as well. To be fair, I mean, are we blaming him for that? Come on, Virgil. Well, Virgil was having the finger pointed at him by a lot of people. Yes. Well, what's the story with this guy? You know, he used to run. He he used to run once. You know, he this guy used to. You know, the time was when he'd be across. Actually, come think of it, the the most. Uh, acclaimed piece, individual uh, instance of defending by Virgil van Dijk since he joined Liverpool. Mm. Can, can you? Do, do, is there a I'm candidate in say mind? There, yeah. Okay. So there was uh, like a blatant two on one. I think it was. I think it was Spurs. It was. I think Spurs. Son. Son was the guy that he was that. He, the, Son was the guy who didn't have the ball. The yes. guy who did have the ball was Musa um, Sissoko. That's exactly, you remembered uh, well, it exactly I, uh, right. God, 2022 is going to be a hell of a year. 
If that's how we've started. You ahead of the game. But that's what Van Dyke did. Now now this is a, it was a slightly different situation from the from the Chelsea second goal yesterday. Um but his the the great the the everybody he praised on him for showing patience uh, and faith in his goalkeeper uh, and deciding to cover the pass to Son, who he obviously decided was the more dangerous of the two finishers who were bearing down on his goal, and leaving Sissoko to have a go on his left foot. And that's kind of what he did as well with uh, Pulisic, because if he had gone, as everybody was, was suggesting he should have done, and, and sort of sprinted and sort of thrown himself across the path of Pulisic, not only does he open himself up to maybe Pulisic just cutting inside him and, and, and scoring on his right foot, but uh, there's the option of Pulisic just laying it into the space that he's he's left behind. I think it was Mason Mount who who has now a clear shot and goal. So that may be why he he didn't move. Maybe he expected Kelleher to uh, to close down Pulisic a little bit more. I did I did think Pulisic though took it really early and just you know put it away really well. Um, you know it was a better finisher. It was a better finish. From the the way that the he had to sort of control the ball, it was slightly awkward, and it was on his left side, and he pulled out a better finish than I'd have expected him to. So maybe Virgil was was thinking, okay, you know, I've 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 sized up all the probabilities here, and you know, I'm going to put my fate in Queen, and oh no, well, he couldn't do anything about the first goal, or maybe it's simply that Virgil just doesn't run that much anymore. He's just not, uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, we we still haven't really seen enough uh, of his defending since that uh, <laughs> massive injury yep. he had. But uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was an interesting comment from him about Quibi. Uh We'll be speaking to Rafa Honigstein in just a few minutes about uh, Tuchel versus Lukaku, and also if City are starting to look more and more like an English Bayern Munich. But uh, first, let's report on some support there, please, Ken. So I mean, it was a um, it was a Great weekend. I mean, I was watching the goal of the month uh, contest. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I saw recently, I can't remember in what context, but like the December 2000s, the legendary December 2006 goal of the month mm. com- competition, which has, you know, like Michael Essien's crazy goal against Arsenal. Uh, I think that was the winner, but like a load of mm. schools is volley uh, off the bar against Villa. Or against something. Villa, was that, was that that? I think that was I all think that goal was, of the month yeah. Maybe Drogba scored a great goal against Everton that month. Um, there was a lot of this, you know, crashing, smashing goals. Um, it's regarded as a classic. And I was just thinking, you know, nobody was really saying this about the December. Uh, 2021 goal of the month but I thought like there's a lot of stuff in there that would just wipe the floor with this 2006 <laughs> or like a lot of the 2006 goals suddenly look just quite standard yeah the, fr- the first three goals of the go- I, I mean it's been a while since we've talked about the goal of the month I know. Uh, but I will say this the first three were all unbelievable volleys like the first yeah, three were volleys. Bernardo Silva. Bernardo Silva, uh, Mason Mount against West Ham, which is a very difficult and, technical volley, I thought. And Mope. And Mope. Yes, that and that was so that, yes, that sorry, that was an overhead. And then the next three were like just crashing drives from outside yeah. the area. <laughs> Lucas Moura uh, <laughs> Lucas Moura, Trent, Alexander Arnold and Kevin Bryant. And then there, for a little something different, there was Alexandra Lacazette's goal. That started with yeah, like know, a uh, Ramsdale, uh, yeah, a rhythmic uh, passing build-up from Arsenal. Yeah. From one of the ah, there was there was something for everyone, Ken. There was no doubt about it. There really was. Uh, you know, I thought uh, probably um, both Lucas Moore and Bernardo Silva were a little hard done by. Oh, I actually you know? didn't watch to the end to find out who won. <laughs> oh, who do you think uh, won? Who do I think? Well, who do you think won? won then? This is you know we can. Uh, what's this called? A Keynesian beauty contest. Uh, not it's not uh, not who, which goal did you think is most beautiful, but which goal do you think uh, won the popularity oh, contest? Trent Alexander Arnold. Uh, correct, <laughs> correct. And, t- and can you show your workings? Why do you think it was Trent because Liverpool what, what fans will vote in far greater numbers than any other <laughs> fans? That is, Kevin, let's say Kevin De Bruyne didn't have much of it, or Bernardo. Well, maybe the Man City vote was split. and it split the vote. Of maybe course, split yeah, the vote. yeah, maybe that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's why only one of them made it into the top three. Um, but uh, Lucas Moura was the other one that made it into the top three. Uh, but yes, you are correct. Uh, he, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold did win. Um, and that may have, that was the same reason that I thought. But just uh, over the weekend that happened, there were some unbelievable goals. Like uh, the 
um, Lanzini yeah. for West Ham, where, where he just took like a, a load of touches without the ball touching the ground and smashed it in. Um, Enough the, the crossbar corner. as well. <laughs> and, and I have to say, you know, a goal is improved by 10 to 15% if there's a little in off the cro- in off the underside of the crossbar going on as well. But the the Alexis McAllister goal goal number 2 against Everton was absolutely incredible. Mm. And he then comes out in his interview afterwards and says, "Well, the first one was better." Yeah, well. The first goal was clearly better. And I'm like, "No. No, you're, no, you're no, wrong. no, no, no. I respect you, you but you're wrong." You have a lot to learn about English football, and definitely your second goal was better. Um, just the the sheer amount of welly involved in this. <laughs> Johan uh, Wiesa's goal for Brentford, uh, Salah and Kovacic, obviously, in the in the game that was on last night. You know, Saka, um, Stuart Dallas, a, another a Cookstown yeah. curler. Ah. Cookstown Sizzler uh, from Stuart uh, from Stuarty Dallas. <laughs> Unbelievable. And... Uh, uh, and uh, even Danny Ings in that um, in that game, yeah, brilliant goal. That was a lovely goal. So I mean, you know, what can I do? Like, I'm just, I'm just, just a whirlwind of positivity here. Just saying, that was a great goal, just, and that was a great goal, and that was a great goal. And another thing, <laughs> another thing, celebrating in front of opposing fans. Mm. Uh, I remember Arsenal were told earlier in the season not to do it at Leeds. Remember they they were doing this. They were kind of celebrating, and the referee kind mm. of said, "No, oh, get out of there, stop doing this." Did it happen again more recently? Did a referee said, oh, I hear this and stop that. Did anyone say anything to Rodri for what he did? At the end? <laughs> I honestly thought, Rodri, like, have you been following what's been going on here? Or, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've got like an earpiece of this, of the Steve McManaman and um, BT Sport commentary uh, and, and are experiencing a totally different version of the game from like most of the people in that stadium, and I believe most of the people watching on television who, you know, I, mean, I don't know if you were watching the game, uh, Kieran, but was it that the BT, the comedy was particularly bad or was it simply that I was hung over? I wasn't <laughs> sure. I mean, it was the first game. Of, I think there is, I think there's also just like, there, uh, people are reaching their breaking point with BT's just non-stop obsession with refereeing decisions and VAR. Just on every single game that they cover, it's just a non-stop like, we hate to talk about that. We hate to talk about referees. <laughs> but I'm afraid we must. Well, for 25 I'm afraid minutes. we must, though. We actually must. I'm afraid that we must. Um, I'm sorry. It's just, well, I, th- I thought they were kind of just missing what was what was going on. I mean, it just seemed to me the like, again, it was it was a similar story to, to the um, okay, Tottenham. Wh- what decisions did the referee in VAR get wrong in the Manchester City Arsenal game on Saturday morning, Ken? A blatant foul by Ederson missed uh, and not even reviewed. Mm. It's a blatant uh, foul. It's not even. I think. Not I think there's an argument that it, there's there's a couple of camera angles which suggest that he may have got a foot on the ball. And if he gets a foot there on the is ball, a, then there is a camera. There is a camera angle in which you can clearly see that he hits Odegaard's foot before. I mean, he he gets he does get a touch on the ball, or maybe he drives Odegaard's foot into the ball. But one way or the other, Odegaard's foot is between him and the ball. That's a foul, unquestionably. And when you saw it in in real time, it looked every inch of foul. That blaze gun. That's a that's clearly. I think a if, if it's given as a penalty, VAR definitely aren't overturning it. But I no. But at the same time, I can. I mean, the fact that me and you are disagreeing means that it's possible that. Well, the, the fact that we mean you were disagreeing just tells me that You're you didn't see it properly. <laughs> no, seriously, you didn't. You didn't. You no, must have seen it. Like, I mean, I, it a million times, Ken. I mean, well, there's no I, way honestly, of avoiding. I don't know how. You, I don't know how you can have. I don't know how you can have failed to see. It. I mean, it's so clear. You know, and this is the and this is the second time that Ederson has um, has has got away with like a really blatant foul. I mean, the last time he did, the ball was was nowhere. The ball, a different player had the ball, and he tackled a guy, he tackled another guy, and and took him out. Uh, and Newcastle made a lodged a, an official complaint of the referee. He's just done it again, and so this is why you know so Manchester City are obviously cruising away, and the game, the result of the of the Chelsea Liverpool game, um, uh, is you know makes an even better weekend for them because both of the um, rivals, I mean, so called, both of the closest teams to them are, are dropping points. But like it does smooth the path a little bit when you get. Um, you know, not just luck, but the decisions as well. And I say they got luck because, you know, even after they, even after they got that penalty, and I do think that the the Man City 
penalty was a penalty. Mm. You know, it was a, it was a typical, it was an absolute Granite Xhaka special. You yeah. know, it's like Xhaka can never take, he can never take it when someone beats him. He, he never just accepts, okay, I've been, uh, he's done me there. And now I've just got to turn around and hope that I hope that I don't turn around to see him smashing the ball into the net. Maybe I can get another mm. block on it when I turn around. He goes, oh no, he's beaten me. No, I can't accept that. I'm going to both try to trip him and sort of pull out his shirt just in case the trip, you know. Uh, he's like, he goes to trip him, then he sort of pulls out the trip, then he just grabs it. I can't help but grab your shirt. And and Bernardo Silva does dive. You can see him go, oh, there it is. You know, I've got the shirt pull. They'll see that. Uh, I better make sure that the ref sees it. And actually, the ref didn't give it. The ref didn't give either penalty in real time. But for some reason, they go back and say, well, look, this is clearly a foul on Bernardo Silva. When they didn't do it with... Um, with, in my opinion, the m- more obvious Ederson foul. This is infuriating. You know, it's, it's infuriating for uh, for everybody, really. Um, apart from Manchester City, who are get, who, who, whose path to another title is being smoothed by these decisions. Um, you know, uh, the look that I mentioned really was more to do with what Martinelli did just a couple of minutes after the penalty. Uh, where he just blazed wide of a completely... It's effectively an open goal. I mean, Nathan Ake is in the goal, but he's not going to be able to block if Martinelli can put the ball on target because he's in the goal. <laughs> and uh, Martinelli just manages to put it wide. Having had an, an a sensational game, you know, I mean, he had so many amazing moments. I mean, there was one where the, the run where, you know, over 60 yards, he managed to sort of weave his way between both, um, was it uh, Diaz and... Cancelo, uh, before eventually just getting around the back of Cancelo yeah, against the ball wide. Cancelo, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah. Um, uh, and then he then he misses it, and then almost immediately Arsenal had this red card. And this is just well, this is, I mean, this is one of the great Arsenal implosions. And weirdly, you know, Arsenal still afterwards, I think we're we're probably feeling pretty proud of themselves just because they for for you know the first time in a long time managed to really put it up to Man City and, and actually outplay them for certainly for most of the first half and have City in real trouble and then have the feeling that we've only lost this because of the ref. You know what I mean? Although they did in, in the end lose yeah, it. See, there's, there is always. great comfort to be had in being able to come off and say, oh, well, we've been completely robbed here. You know, even though yeah. the sending off was completely justified, the penalty they gave away was, was justified. completely justified. Mm. And, well, listen, we've discussed the, the, the penalty. And there's, there, you know, I mean, it's a penalty... That they could have gotten, um, you know, in the in the first half. Like, who's to say that City don't come back and win the game in any case? You know, like when the game was there to be won, they still they still couldn't do it. Um, mm. And then they have, you know, Pep, which I actually think would annoy them. Even, you know, I mean, you know, there would be a, a subset of Arsenal fans who'd be really happy to hear Pep say, "Listen, you know, we were not the better team." But it's actually infuriating to a large section of Arsenal fans. Also, I would presume. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't say it. they were better. They were better. Managers seldom say that when their team loses, you know, but it's easy to, to yeah, say you know, the best team <laughs> lost. I mean, even Mourinho says it's quite fun of that. The best team lost um, sometimes when uh, when his team has uh, has won a game. But, um, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, I mean, even I mean, it was, it was kind of done even before this weekend, but just the events of this weekend have just led... I think, ev- like, everyone has just said, right, okay, well... That's that. Well, there. it's a, Arsenal, know, Spurs, means... Manchester United will be a more uh, for all the talk of a three-way title race. It'll be another three-way battle for fourth, which will be uh, engaging most of our minds for the next uh, four or five months. I mean, like it, it is daft that you're uh, as Graham Smith is saying. Listen, it's January second. It's January second. But even now, if you add up the total number of points that uh, that Chelsea and Liverpool get, if they win literally every single one of their games from now until the end of the season. Do you still think City will get fewer points than that? It's I, I don't think so. Probably not. And that's um, presuming they win every single one of their games, which they're not going to. I mean, the 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 we'll know pretty soon because the next game is Chelsea against Man City, uh, the next Premier League game. I mean, there isn't there's there's Carabao Cup and FA Cup and whatnot, but the next uh, Premier League game is uh, Chelsea City. So if Chelsea win that, then it's it it means there's still the sort of faintest. Um, chance that maybe City won't won't get there, but even then they'd be so far ahead that you'd still fancy them. But you know, if Chelsea do win, then maybe 
you know um <laughs> as uh, the league begins in uh, new year's uh, just get through the christmas the league begins on january 1st as Sir Alex Ferguson used to say when literally everything was different i saw for instance over the weekend like um uh simon wykowski who's a writer for the uh, manchester evening news um, making the point because this has this has become a sort of like a, a couple of people were contacting us sort of complaining about um you know we we were talking to rory smith uh about the kind of um you know rory's point was it's it's i think it's unfortunate that you're at a point where a couple of draws in december means you're out of the title race mm. you know you can't recover from from that and and it, it does sort of take away a bit of the drama and um Naturally, this this sort of is, is irritating to City fans. It's like, well, it seems like uh, people only complain about football being ruined when it's our team running away with it. Um, when it's not as it's hardly as though Man City have been the only team to do this over the years. Liverpool did it a couple of seasons ago. There's, you know, Chelsea did it a couple of seasons before that. Um, you know, Manchester United have done it in the past, uh, and it wasn't as though everyone was saying we have been ruined. And um, Simon Abkowski, uh his his tweet was. Um, well, he said after 20 matches, Chelsea's points per game puts them on course to get 80 points this season. And that, of course, would have gone down since they, they only got one out of three mm. points um, yesterday. That would have been enough to win zero of the last 20 years. Zero. 20. Liverpool are on course to get 82 points, enough to win two of the last 20 titles. So, And those two titles would have been 2011. When actually Man United, I think Man United, who won it, got 82 points that season. Um, so it would, I think it would be goal difference to Manchester. And Leicester in 2016 um, got, I think, 81 uh, with their with what they're tracking for. Um, so anyone asking how Liverpool and Chelsea can compete with City should be asking why these two clubs, with all of their resources, are tracking lower than basically every champion in the last 20 years. Spoiler, the answers can't be found at the Etihad. And so his point essentially is it's not that City are so great, it's that the, it's that the the chasing pack are so mediocre, you know these these guys are jokers. You know they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been champions uh, for the last. You know the only thing that's changed here is is, is no one's putting it up to mm. no one's actually putting it up to City. Well, yeah, but I um, mean that that suggests that uh, that um, every club that's won the championship doesn't have a wobble in mid season and then goes on to. You know what I mean? Like the like you you, you yeah. take into account the wobble, but then you don't say, well, uh, the the fact that you've had a dip for four or five games means that in ten more games you'll have another dip of four to five games. The, the whole idea of it is that you know you you can have a wobble and then you recover. You greatly increase your points per game average over the second half of the season, and that's enough mm. to then go on and win the, the like the the idea is that you don't start at a at a, a pace that's a championship pace. The, the idea that you can. Uh, dawdle along for a couple of months and then as uh, Ferguson used to say on January 1st you go on a run you win eight in a row or something and then you draw a couple of more against and then you win another six or seven in a row and that's how you win the the league the idea is yeah. that like that you've had the wobble and now it's dead it's finished it's over that's like it, I don't think that that necessarily proves the point that 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 uh, the journalist there thinks he's making no, I don't think so either. And you know, the fact is that this this is taken just after both Chelsea and Liverpool have had their sort of wobble. So the points per game tracking looks a little lower than it actually would have uh, uh, otherwise. But the but it's also failing, I think, to emphasise the more significant point, which is that Manchester City are on course for ninety five points this season. He does mention this uh, based on the first twenty matches, and that of course would have gone up as they once they once again won the game against Arsenal uh, and he says despite having failed to replace Sergio Aguero and also spent a hundred million pounds on a player who has been one of their most underwhelming performers despite having spent a hundred million pounds on a player who's, who's basically <laughs> been no good right this is that's a like despite just strikes me as the wrong <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know like they you can they can spend a hundred million on a player and he doesn't even have to succeed and it, and it will be fine they'll just they just go on like that's how powerful this team is 95 the 95 points that they're tracking for that would have won the league in every single season in history apart from 2018 when man city won the league 2019 when man city won the league and 2020 when liverpool won the league with a with an insane the insane points total mm. of ninety nine. So every other season, what City are doing would have been 
would have been enough to be the champions. I think that's kind of the point. That's the sort of, that's the the kind of freakish element here. You know, this the the standard is like is so high that you know in a, in a, in a different world these chasing teams, despite their disappointing, you know, effectively they've they've both they both kind of collapsed over Christmas. You know, I mean, they're both is is Liverpool winless in four now. Um, the uh, Chelsea have, have drawn four out of five, so that's that's enough to really to yeah, kick five the, of their last six know. home games. I think have been drawn as well. Yeah, so that that's 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 really you're stalling there, mm. but they could still, you know, in 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 normal circumstances, you know, in, what we're used to describing as normal circumstances, they could still feel as though we still have a chance here. You know, all is not lost, but now they they kind of feel it's lost. But of course, um, if they believe it is. Uh, then it definitely will be. Um, where were we? Uh, I mean, that game. It, Chelsea obviously spent 100 million on a player who hasn't performed for them. We're going to be talking a bit more about that with Raphael Hornstein soon. But they actually do need players who who they spend that money on. They still are in a position of needing their record signings to to perform, and it and it hurts them if if that doesn't happen. Um, I mean, would he have been any use in that game yesterday? I don't know. Maybe it would have been helpful to be able to throw him on at the end because I feel as though you know the second half was was quite different from the first I mean both because the the teams were were thinking it would be terrible to lose this now after everything that's gone into it Um, but mainly because I think they were both really tired uh, and couldn't sort of couldn't keep up the the tempo before I mean Liverpool in particular um, struck me as very like very defensive compared to their usual um, attitude in these games. I think really in the last in the last sort of quarter of the game, they they very much said a draw is the best we can do here, and weren't really even sort of trying to come out, um, which is not uh, which is not typical with them. But I think when you look at it, hasn't been typical for them over the last few years. But I think um, when you look at who they actually had in the field. Um, the sort of tiredness that was obvious from guys like Henderson, you know, Fabinho. Um, they just aren't able to kind of take a grip on games that the way they, they, they used to be. Not for not for the entire game. They can they can still do it for like a half. But um, you know I think it was, again, moment. like there was definitely a moment in the first half where it was extraordinary that Liverpool were tuning up because it really felt like they had barely played. Um, mm. And you know Salah's goal was just so unbelievably good, like mm. you know, like there's there's no defending it. There's no you know there's no <laughs> there's no stopping that when it, Well, know, someone could have noticed some take is making the run. I mean, you know, Chelsea were a bit too. I mean, Chelsea obviously are are being compact, but you can they were just a bit too compact, and everybody you know took their eye off Salah, and he realized that nobody's watching me here. I can just run behind their entire team. You know, it was it was very unusual. I mean, to see to see a run from from there end up where he did with nobody really getting close to him yeah the ball over is so good though and the first the first touch is so good i mean you know the, like there i think there are probably 20 or 30 moments in a game like that where you know the, the, that where that's available if you can deliver the pass and you can uh, have a first touch as good as that and it's just you know the, like the quality of Joe was just so unbelievably good that i think it's nearly churlish to be talking about you know a defensive lapse but um, yeah, I mean, for all that, Chelsea did, uh, they probably did deserve to win a halftime uh, uh, level, uh, given that they had been brilliant for 25 minutes and were a goal down after all of that. Yeah, um, I fancied them to win the game, to be honest. And then, I mean, they nearly did. I mean, the, they nearly scored like three goals in five minutes before halftime because mm. a Mason Mount one. I mean, Mount, this is the one that went just wide. Yeah, Ke- Keller had it covered. I maintain <laughs> Keller. I mean, and Keller made Keller made a couple of great saves. Whatever about Van Dijk um, leaving unsaid what he might have mm. done with the second goal, uh, he did make a brilliant save from Pulisic. Um, kind of an Allison type save. Allison is good at that. Um, you know, tackling a a forward with his hands yeah. or punching the ball away from. I've seen him do that a couple of times, and uh, it's obviously something Keller is kind of. Uh, incorporated his game as well because it was brilliant, uh, brilliant challenge on Pulisic, and then to uh, when he could easily give away a penalty, and then a close range save again from the same player in the second half. 
the mountain was going wide, but all Mount really needs to do is just take that one down. I mean, I, I lecture Mason Mount on this <laughs> for my chair. <laughs> really, all you, all you needed to do there was take what a What he should have done. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it would have been a pretty easy um, pretty easy finish. Uh, well, he still would have had to beat Gallagher, of course. Mm. Uh, you must have been delighted to see Brighton uh, winning again. <laughs> Two wins well, unbelievably, I have a few Brighton fans sending me like uh, snotty messages on Twitter. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like, what are they saying? Ah, just you know, that I was pricking stuff like that. Ken, listen, it's still a big yeah. deal. No, no, no one called me a prick, but people were just helpfully pointing out that their XG, that they're finally cashing in on their unbelievable XG performance. Uh, where yeah. can I find the, t- the tweet here? Yes, apparently that's what they're doing. Anyway. They're, 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 all of their hard work is is paying dividends now. They, they, they're they reaping what they sowed in the XG. In well, years. ironically, they didn't win the XG against Everton. It, is doesn't, it, it doesn't get any more ironic than that, Ken. Um, I, don't know if it is, I don't know if it is ironic, but it was, a, uh, it was certainly unfortunate for Everton, who, uh, again... Well, not again. They don't often do it, but they won the XG and lost three uh, two. One of the most tense penalties I've ever seen taken by Calvert Lewin. I've never seen a player radiate such an impression of like um, coiled sort of nerves and tension. I mean, it's such a strange penalty taken. Do, do you remember the, the what he did? Mm. I mean, he the, he has the ball, puts the ball down, and then he sort of. He, he stood really close to the ball and then suddenly like leapt forward and lashed at it and lashed it over the bar or off the off the top of the bar. Mm. And I just thought that was not what I would like to. It's not, mm. not my idea of a good penalty technique. They did at least have um, little Gordon, who was the same age as Adam, uh, Adam Ida, for instance, scoring a couple of goals, um, which is a bright spot. But obviously uh, it looks as though maybe Richard Keyes was right and, Rafa's in deep trouble. What you? What are you saying? You just a phony man. This is just for I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. This ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My heart is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad, and they know I'm bad. I'll never do that. There were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other was right here. You can, you can run around like you a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you, I will baptize you. I don't play this, man. You can't teach that. Well, it's great to start the uh, new year by talking to um, one of our favorite contributors, Raphael Honigstein, uh, joins us now. How are you doing, Raphael? I'm fine, Ken. How are you? Very well. Um... I wanted to ask you what you made of this whole this whole drama, which is which has blown up to, I believe, incredible proportions uh, over the last few days involving Thomas Tuchel, Romelu Lukaku. I mean, Tuchel said uh, after or before the game, actually, he said this just got too noisy. What do you think it was that annoyed him so much about this interview? It's hard to say, really, because he was at pains of pointing out after the game that it was nothing personal that he didn't feel attacked. I don't think it was the passage where Lukaku seems to be questioning Tuchel's methods or his system that really riled him. I think it's the wider point whereby Lukaku seemed to suggest that he's there at Chelsea, but actually he'd rather be somewhere else. Um, either at Inter or Barcelona, Real Madrid, Bayern, these are teams that he'd thought about. And that seems to be the, I think, the section that has riled both the Chelsea hierarchy and if Tuchel is to believed, also at least upset the important players in the dressing room enough for them to suggest, well, maybe it is a good idea. Um, he, he said he consulted with them. They said it was a big topic in the dressing room. And he obviously felt that he needed to, to make that move. It's still, as you suggest, I think there's still a, a gap between the size of the misdemeanor and the result or the consequence and it does feel almost like an overreaction and it'd be very interesting to see what happens in this meeting today because even even now or even last night they were suggesting well who knows what's going to happen as if you know Lukaku might be sentenced to three months in jail or it was very very sort of ominous you know we're having this big meeting and who knows what's going to happen so 
I think reading between the lines, you can only surmise, I think, that what Lukaku has done fits into a wider pattern where, whereby the club and Tuchel and maybe even some of the players feel that he's not fully committed to them. That's the only explanation I have, that this is not sort of just one big moment, but actually in the eyes of the, the people responsible, more sort of a culmination or continuation of him being a little bit not fully bought in. And that's, and I'm speculating here, but that's the only explanation I can find for, for the reaction being this strong. What about the explanation that, that Lukaku is a flop and someone's got to take the fall for, for that? <laughs> Lukaku was pointing the finger at his coach saying, well, you know, he's decided to go to a different system and, you know, obviously I'm not happy. But, you know, he was suggesting that, that it's, it's Tuchel's fault that I can't score any goals. I'm not sure he did. Um, there was a suggestion that he slightly misspoke when he said Modulo then instead instead of formation or system, he wanted to say just methods. And that would have been a lot softer. You know, a new coach, new ideas. I'm still getting used to it. I can make it work. And that was it. Um, of course, you always question the player bringing these things up in the first place. Why just not keep quiet? But the interview happened at a time when he was perhaps a little bit frustrated. He'd just come back, scored a couple of goals. You know, he was being important. I don't think he is a flop. Um, but... Let's put it this way, the amount of a fallout or the degree of the fallout would suggest that in the eyes of Chelsea and at least Tuchel, he's perhaps not as important as he should be. Sorry, and your sense is that, that they, are, they, they are as one at that, that both Tuchel and the board or the, you know, the, the club officials who signed Lukaku, because I'm not sure that Thomas Tuchel necessarily took the initiative in, in signing this player. He might have not taken the initiative, but I think he was, and this I, I know this from people who are fairly close to him, I think he was quite happy with having a centre-forward. He wanted a centre-forward. There weren't a tons of you know, outstanding centre-forwards around. Lukaku had just had one of his best seasons, perhaps his best ever season at Inter. He was available. And I think Tuchel was, was quite happy, uh, as, as you would be, because he had something... That, that Chelsea haven't got. And I think there's still a role for him to play. I don't think he's been, he's been particularly bad. I think he's had injuries, he's had COVID, he's, you know, his game time has been limited, but I don't think it's necessarily through him being playing badly. So I don't think this is terminal. I mean, what's going to be interesting now is what kind of happens next because the board and Tuchel might be, and, and the team might be in, in full agreement of what happened now, you know, take him out of the game give him a bit of breathing space, make him come back saying, maybe, you know, got things wrong, let's let's start again. If this persists, however, if somehow this is a expression of Lukaku trying really to get out of Chelsea, um, as the brother of the journalist uh, suggested who did the interview, um, interesting definition of off-record, by the way. It's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> um, then I think we have an issue because then you have an asset the most expensive player that Chelsea have ever bought. And you have a coach and perhaps a team that think he's not quite good enough. And then then is a big question of what happens next. And in the past, Tuchel has been very, very forceful with players that he, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, doesn't like. He's been very, very strong and almost ostracizing them. I'm not suggesting this not necessarily repeat itself, but at Dortmund, that was definitely... A situation where it didn't matter how big the name was, if Tuchel didn't fancy you, you had a really hard time. And this is when I think we might we might see that unity somehow crumbling a little bit because essentially you start then damaging your asset to a certain extent. So that's going to be really interesting. Can you uh, think of or tell us about any previous examples of that? In terms of falling out with players, I mean, he did he did well. He was a PSG deal, I suppose, with, with a lot of players who were, let's say, somewhat willful. Um, I can't remember him having any major fallouts. Maybe they're, maybe just my memory isn't that good. Maybe your memory is better. At PSG, I think it wasn't so much him and, and players, although there were one or two situations, but I guess they're inevitable with the type of players you have at PSG. Uh, it was him and the sporting director, of course, Leonardo, which was the big, big 
problem. But he had actually learned, I think, from his experience at Dortmund, where he didn't have a strong connection to some of the important players and, and changed his coaching team to have a slightly more emotional bond. And Scholte Löw, who's come in, I think helped him a lot with PSG and helps him a lot at Chelsea. But at Dortmund, there were players like Mats Hummels, you know, the, the captain or de facto captain, Levin Subotic, sort of a real club icon, a few others who didn't appreciate the way Tuchel spoke to people, didn't appreciate the, the times that Tuchel ostracized one or two players, make them really suffer if, the, if he felt that they weren't playing enough, they spoke out and they were punished for it. Um, it, it came to a, not to a head, but to give you an example, um, Nevin Subotic, as I said, you know, huge, huge player internally and, and for the fans. He wasn't put in the squad for the um, cup final in 2016. And... What Tuchel then did is actually tell him you can't visit the hotel, the team hotel before the before the final. You're banned from the team hotel, which was really seen as excessive. I mean, it's just a small thing, but it spoke to a to a very combustible, almost vindictive nature that Tuchel had at the time. And I, I don't think we've reached that point yet at all with Lukaku. It didn't he didn't seem to be suggesting that um, in his fairly relaxed demeanor after the after the game last night. But it shows you that once you fall on the wrong side of Tuchel, then it often gets very difficult. What is your sense of what Lukaku was trying to achieve with the interview? Well, I think there are two possibilities. One is, as the brother of the journalist involved suggested, he really wants out. And this is the first step towards trying to find a way out. Um, If you want to extricate yourself from a situation like that, you have to probably do it with an amount of of publicity because otherwise people don't understand what it is you're doing. You've only been here for a few months. That's one possibility. The other possibility, which I think I prefer at this moment, or I I find more realistic is that he tried to just write a little bit of a love letter, write a bit of a love letter to the Inter fans and just got a little bit lost, started talking, started being a little bit too open, a bit too emotional and, and said a lot of things that he should have, shouldn't have said. I think that is the more realistic possibility because from what I understand, his agents were not aware that this was going to happen. The club certainly were not aware, so this was completely him doing this. And I think if this was a bigger move, not the first possibility, I'd be surprised if he'd done that without anyone knowing, if, if indeed they didn't know, but I think it's, it's fairly obvious that they weren't informed. So I'd like to think that he just basically got a little bit lost in his own emotions and started saying things that reflected well on his time at Inter, but he didn't think through how they would be perceived at his, at his current club. And I think if that is true, then there should be a fairly easy way back. But of course, that also is with the proviso that everything else is fine, that he actually fits into the team, etc., which maybe, judging from the Chelsea reaction, isn't quite... <laughs> maybe he's not quite as appreciated as he thinks he is. Otherwise, I think they wouldn't have dropped him that easily. I mean, one thing in his favour is that uh, they did sign him because they needed a player in that position. And it's not as though, when you look at Chelsea's team at the moment, there are obvious... Um, players who, sh- who should be playing there instead of him. And the guy who they were using, I guess, in Lukaku's position or in the closest thing to Lukaku's position yesterday was Kai Havertz, who uh, also has struggled a little bit. I think it's fair to say, Raphael. I mean, maybe not as badly as Timo Werner. It's not as though Kai Havertz hasn't had some great moments already in a, in a Chelsea shirt, but there haven't been too many of them. I mean, he seems like a player who's good at almost everything apart from scoring or assisting goals, which are pretty important when you're at the focal point of your team's attack. I don't think it's that. I think I don't think he is made to be a centre-forward in the Premier League, playing the way that, that Chelsea play. I've always felt that, that Chelsea, even under Tuchel, there's a directness to them. It's a little bit... It's a little bit wild and loose at times. And if you are... The target man, the centre forwards, playing with your back to goal. I, th- I think it's not it's not his game. If Chelsea had a bit more possession, play a bit slower, 
He can drop deep, can really do his stuff. He's, he's, he's a number 10 playing as a number 9, in my view. Then I think we'd see a very different Kai Harvard. So I think it's a little bit um, the result of, of the system, of the way that the Chelsea play, of the way that the Premier League work when, when Chelsea play. And of course, there's also still a, um, a process of adjustment. I think he has barked up. I think he's become strong on the ball. But he still doesn't look 100% at home. I think that's absolutely right. Mm. I'm shocked by what you're saying about the how it's difficult for a player like him to fit into the way Chelsea are trying to play. It's evidently been difficult for Lukaku. Um, it's been difficult for Werner. Is there is there anyone this might actually suit or is this a, is this a system that necessarily makes forward players look bad no i don't think it makes forward players look bad i don't think lukaku has looked bad when he was you, when he, you don't think so i mean we we definitely disagree about this because lukaku over his couple of years in inter was a really not i mean was it was a a prolific goal scorer uh, who you know Look great. I mean, he's playing in an empty stadium, Serie A. I mean, it seems to me to be the main difference between what you know. He was great at that, and this is a, you know he's been replaced by Edin Dzeko, who apparently a lot of Inter fans are saying, well, you know, Dzeko is actually almost even better than Lukaku. You know, Dzeko was a good strike in the Premier League ten years ago. Like, is this a pace of football that he's just not really suited to play? I don't think that's the problem, but I think there's a problem if there's a lack of control, and I think this. This Chelsea team are still trying to figure out how they have more control in games. I think Tuchel would be the first one to to admit that. I don't think Lukaku has been um, playing badly. I think five goals and thirteen. He's had se- he's had off- seven shots on target. I think. Yeah, it doesn't really matter because he's not going to get more many touches. I think if he takes shots from decent positions, if he scores five out of those seven shots, that's fine. Yes, of course, you, you want him to be more involved and. But how many games has he played? I think you know, thirteen games. That that's I think that's far too early to make to make any definitive judgment whether he fits in or not. Um, especially when you see how how new players have to have struggled. I mean, look, uh, let's talk about Kovacic or, or Jorginho. Where were they after? Where were they after uh, thirteen games at, in the Chelsea team? Mm. They were nowhere, um, and and. Certainly with Jorginho, I mean, there was a real campaign to sort of get him out of the club almost. I think it's it's a bit harsh to say he doesn't fit in, it doesn't work for him, the Premier League's not for him. He's not at his best, yes. He can play a lot better, yes. But Inter, there was a lot of counter-attacking, a lot of space for him to run to against Chelsea. A lot of teams don't push up. They, they play quite deep and then it becomes more difficult for him in, in small spaces, I think. One thing we can discuss is, and I think that's something that he said, this idea that he is a target man in the orthodox sense, that he's best holding up the ball and just knocking things on, this probably doesn't actually do him justice. Yes, he is big and tall and very strong, but actually his game is more about spaces, is more about linking up, is more about making runs, and all these things are very difficult when you play against very deep defences who are aware of that, maybe more so than they were in Italy even though you'd think that they'd be clued, clued up to that. But I think Serie A at this stage is quite open and maybe there's actually more joy to be had for mm. for centre-forwards. Uh, I have to say it's a long time since I've seen a game as open as the one yesterday. I mean, this is is this what uh, these German coaches are doing to the Premier League? Rafael just storming from end to end with almost no midfield at all. You must have been proud. I, I was very proud just uh, and privileged of being there and seeing it. I mean, I think it was open in the sense that we saw lots of chances created, but you could see you could see the teams trying to trying to be organised. I think that you know Liverpool tried to be compact. It was just Chelsea took advantage of some of some mistakes. You know, they they scored from a corner. Uh, they nearly scored from a um, mistaken clearance. I'm trying to think where the second goal came from. The second Chelsea goal was uh, Rudiger um, beating Salah to a ball uh, and sort of knocking it forward. You know, I think Alexander Arnold tried to pass to Salah, but Rudiger got there first. Yeah, that, that was a case of Alexander Arnold being out of position, and then the back three was was disorganized. But I maybe my my judgment or my my sort of experience is clouded by being there and by the sort of the rush and the excitement you felt. But 
some people on, on Twitter did suggest that this was actually a poor game because it was full of defensive mistakes and chaos, but it didn't feel like that to me. It felt like two really highly skilled, highly organized teams doing damage to each other the way that very few teams can. A little bit similar to, to Arsenal v City, where you can say, well, it was quite open because of the chance, the amount of chances that Arsenal create. But I think that was more testament to to Arsenal playing well and to suddenly you know, saying City is a team that cannot defend, which is definitely not true. And I, I think the same is not true of Chelsea or, or Liverpool. They look a lot more solid. I think you have to look at the good work of the attacking departments rather than blaming poor defending for this for the spectacle. Do you think Liverpool looks solid? Because, you know, uh, watching them yesterday, obviously Salah, um, I think I saw a statistic that he's the first player since Thierry Henry to have 25 goal involvements in a row, or tw- rather 25 goal involvements for five seasons in a row, as many as five seasons in a row. Uh, and he does kind of have that aura of, you know, Thierry Henry in 2004 at the moment, you know, in terms of his standing in the league. Uh, and Liverpool generally actually have that kind of late Invincibles feel from, I, I, I find, that kind of, they play lovely football and they've got that ageing spine. Hmm. I, I don't see any similarities between Liverpool and, and Wenger's Arsenal. Uh, what I was going there for was a side that's maybe lost a little bit of the um, the steeliness that characterised them at their uh, at their finest period. I mean, when they won the league, they were defensively very, very sound and... They won games, 1-0, 2-1. It was, there was a degree of control, I think, that perhaps isn't quite there yet. Yes, I, I'd, agree, I'd agree with that. I think it's to do with the amount of changes, the, the amount of times that the first 11, if you will, haven't been available. Um, every time there's a change, I think it seems to hurt Liverpool a little bit more than teams that perhaps are a bit more strong collectively down to number 15, 16, like, like Man City, I think is the best example. Maybe even Chelsea. But I think they've made up for that in being more productive going forward. I think if you look at the, the underlying numbers, they concede more chances, but they create more. So I don't think anything's changed. I think they are as good, you know, bottom line, as they were when the one the title when perhaps even then they were only the second best team in the league again looking at the under underlying numbers maybe City got a little bit unlucky that year and Liverpool maybe slightly overperformed but I think they are they're an amazing side and they're good enough to win to win the league it's just that City have been absolutely flawless and how do you how do you compete with somebody with a team that's that's basically flawless it's, it's beyond this Liverpool side and in the big games they've they haven't won. There have been a lot of draws. And ultimately, that's what's going to cost them, I think. But no, I don't see, I don't see in any way that they're sort of over the hill or you know, their forces are waning or anything. I think they're incredibly strong. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if they won the Champions League again this year. Well, you mentioned City. Um, they uh, obviously are miles in front now. And, you know, there's been, there's been lots of complaints about, oh, you know, um, this isn't competitive. This isn't fun anymore. City are too good. Um, <laughs> which, okay, I mean, people have made various arguments about this, but I wonder, you know, in the big picture, does it strike you as though another German car- Germanizing characteristic of the Premier League is that uh, there's, a, there's one team that sort of lords it over everybody else and that nobody can catch and that Manchester City are becoming a kind of an English Bayern? No, I don't think that's the case. I think City's... Financial situation does not put them in, in, in Bayern's role. Bayern are almost double the team or the club in terms of the income than the next best rivals. And then the multiple becomes bigger and bigger. With City, you can say, because of the way that the club is structured, etc., they have an advantage over a lot of these teams, maybe most of them, maybe all of them. But the advantage isn't clearly pronounced enough, in my view, in financial terms, to explain why they'd be dominating the league. I think it takes actually somebody like Pep Guardiola cracking the code of football and basically guaranteeing league wins. He's not so good in in knockout games, which is an interesting discussion, but league games, churning out wins, he's figured out how to do that with sort of almost, yeah, a degree of inevitability. And he's figured it out in three different leagues now. I think Pep Guardiola leaves 
I can't think of any coach that would come to mind where I would be confident saying that this will just continue because City as a team are so strong. I don't think I don't think that's the case. I think they are coached to this excellence, and I don't see necessarily all this money having translated into world-class players throughout. I think they're world-class players in this particular team. You take them out, I don't think they necessarily make the difference for many teams. Maybe Kevin De Bruyne, you know, being one exception, maybe Ruben Diaz, but then there are a lot of players, you know, Riyad Mahrez, even Raheem Sterling. I don't see the biggest teams in the world clamoring for them, saying, oh, it's unfair that, you know, City have these players, they dominate the league with these players. It's, it's not that. It's, it's the system and it's Pep. And I think that's ultimately why it will be a fleeting experience. It's interesting, though, that that um, when he left Bayern, there was an expectation. And in fact, there was a kind of a, a post-Guardiola wobble, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, the Ancelotti thing didn't go well and he didn't last very long. And everyone was saying, oh, this place is kind of, we feel like there's been a slackening here and so on. But they sort of just kept very consistently getting similar points totals and winning the league anyway, as though they, they hadn't, whatever he told them, they hadn't forgotten. I mean, the same thing could happen again. Yeah, but there was, as you said, there was a big, big drop-off and they had a very poor season. And if, second season, and if um, Bayern don't react very decisively in September, remember they remember they fired Ancelotti in September of the next season and put Jupankis in, who basically re reinstalls the, the Guardiola blueprint with, with some of his own man management superimposed on it, I think then Bayern don't win the league. They got very close to not winning the league under, under Niko Kovac, 78 points. That's very low by Guardiola standards. Um, Dortmund really, I think, should have pipped them that year. And then we might be heavy, having a different conversation about Bayern's dominance. And now in Nagelsmann, they have somebody who's probably as good as, not Pep in his prime, but somebody who's going to be, I think, one of the best coaches in the world in, in years to come. So then it's very difficult for anyone else. If you have coaching excellence plus by far the best team, then it's hard not to dominate. But Bayern have shown that you can actually mess it up. And I think that is the lesson. Um, I think it's very easy to, to look at outcomes and say they're somehow inevitable. But you look at plenty of big teams, and I can think of many, who spend as much money relative to, you know, to their own leagues or in absolute terms. And the outcome is far less impressive than City under Pep. So I think that tells you that it's not quite that straightforward, a connection between the money and the success. Okay. Well, Raphael Hangstein, it's been great having you back on the show today and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'll ask Gary if he thinks like the publicity he's given young Frank now warrants it. Personally, I don't think he's quite good enough yet. And I also think that in the last couple of years, you let some good midfielders go for peanuts, like Matt Holland and Scott Cannon. Well, no, they definitely wasn't good enough. I'll tell you now, you know, you can sit in front of all these people, I'll tell you, without any shadow of a doubt, there will be no comparison with what Frank Lampard will achieve in football and what Scotty Cannon will achieve in football. And I may be now, I didn't want to say this in front of him, but he will go right to the very top, right to the very top. Oh, there you are. You heard it here first. He has given them belief. It's almost the perfect man management. I love this club. When we start the season, wanting to win. I'm convinced Frank Lampard will become England manager. Frank Lampard's lost eight games. Well, I can't drag people out of the medical room. But for some reason, hey, Frank's doing all right. Frank, maybe because he's English. I don't know. <laughs> why do you think you were off the pace today? I know. That's one for the players. I'd love Frank Lampard to get the Chelsea job in ten years' time. Frank's yeah. track record CV went to Derby. Didn't get promoted. But Frank's got all the answers for Chelsea. He hasn't. I think for a journalist to be objective would be a big start. Harry Redknapp joins us live this morning. Harry, good morning to you. Good morning. People need time. You lose four or five games. It doesn't suddenly make you a bad manager. You're only as good as your players at the end of the day. And the players that have brought in, the two German players, have been massive disappointments. Yeah. Massive. I've not yet seen a manager that can turn very average players into great players. I'm still looking to see somebody who can do that. Oh, there you are. You heard it here first. And I, uh, and I, I tell you now, there ain't no doubt about that, in my opinion. Uh, are you taking the Christmas tree down today, Ken? Um, I usually leave it till the 6th. Me too, man. I just December 1st to January 6th in our house. 
Yeah. Feck it like. No, I I will leave it to, I will leave it to the six. Just I've no I've no great urge to tackle it today. Um Yeah. You know, I'm with you, man. We'll get rid of it at some point. <laughs> just out the just out the front door, isn't it? No, I I have a fake one. Oh, okay. I don't want the dog marking it. He's got no interest. He he doesn't recognize it as a tree. Um, if it's a real one, it's <laughs> different. It's true. Uh, I should also say, well done to you, Kev, because when I first heard from you this morning, I thought that you sounded maybe a little fatigued, but your performance levels. Over the last hour, I've hinted at no such tiredness. Was I mistaken? Was there some reason for your lethargy? Uh, I think it was just I hadn't spoken in in a couple of hours. The one I spoke to you, so it just sounded as though, uh, mm. you know, like a, a whale trying Ken, to talk. Come on, Ken, tell the people you were up till half two watching darts, weren't you? Well, that is true. I was up watching the darts rerun. <laughs> why was I doing that? I mean, eventually <laughs> I said, why am I doing this? Like, I've got to get up quite early and I'm watching yeah. darts. But, like, it is actually difficult to stop watching darts once you start watching darts. Mm. You know? Even though See, you don't... I, I don't know I, I, or I, care about the athletes. Smith yeah. versus Wade. You know, it sounds yeah, like a court means... case. But actually, yeah. it was a it was a darts <laughs> world championship semifinal. Um, Smith won in the end. Yeah. But I think I eventually looked up that result um, because I was like, I've, I've got to go to bed. Who won this game? And... Uh, <laughs> And yeah, it was Smith, who I believe is one of the See, it's, finalists. Yeah, it's weird. Like I, you know, I obviously have a, a Twitter just full of people saying unbelievable darts. This is unbelievable. God, could this be the greatest darts game of all time? And that's all I've been reading for the last week or so. Mm. And I just have this really weird relationship with the darts. I mean, it's not like I just don't watch it. You know, I, 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 I don't have any disdain for it. I don't have any contempt for it. I don't have any reason in the world not to watch it, other than that, I just. I have enough sport in my life, you know. Yeah. Well, why so I, why I, I now at this juncture well. try and get involved in the darts? That's why I don't watch and most sport. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, feel yeah, like I know, you're, got, and you're I've right. Too much. You're absolutely right. Why would I want to get involved yet more uh, emotionally with just you know a, another sport that you know I've I've done well to avoid it now. I just feel it's like smoking. You know, I've done well to avoid smoking now. Why would I want to get involved with something that is just going to you know diminish the quality of my life for no reason? So to all of you. Uh, darts fans out there I wish you all the best I mean it's an unbelievably exciting time in your uh, in your lives uh, it's great but I'm just I just haven't done it yet but I mean I will say this it wouldn't be the world championship of darts if Mark Horgan wasn't sending me extremely foul mouthed Dutch, Dutch TV darts coverage this clip from the darts anonymous Twitter account is of Ted the Count Hanky with some helpful self talk while on the way to blowing a checkout of just 25 it's fancy double 12 or double 8 Who's in charge? Me or the devil? I think I'm in charge. Fuck, nine double eight, shake his hand. Just like that. Come on, you cunt. Fucking cunt. Who's in charge? I think I'm in charge. Mrs. Double Eight loses the leg. Who cares? It's the sport of kings, Ked. It really is. I love. Uh, I I love it to the extent that I love watching. I love uh, watching twenty-five to thirty-second YouTube clips. Twenty-five to thirty-second YouTube clips that Mark Horgan sends on to me from time to time. Anyway, we have tons of football, a brand new Ken Early Politics podcast, and rugby on the World Service this week. So why not join up now for a five or a month plus fat? Go to secondcaptains.com. It seems like the right time to join, don't you think? Oh, McDevitt will be back tomorrow morning. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. And we'll chat to you tomorrow. <laughs> prepare for the last match then? These are the questions that you should be asking when we're live. No, we're live now. We're not live now. Yeah, we're live. There you are on television. I'm serious. Yeah. What was it not told? Sorry? 
should have been told. Oh, I thought you know. Well, do I prepare? I'll prepare to say. If I win, I win. But I cannot keep playing like this. This is no good. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.